0: I'd like to have you turn to the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. And we're going to continue on in our studies in this last book in the New Testament, even though this is Easter. The uh, reason is that the chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning has a great deal to do with the theme of Easter, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. It's uh, certainly an appropriate and relevant passage of Scripture i think it's also good to uh... for those of you who are are new here visiting with us for the first time to get some exposure to this book it's a fascinating book and uh, mostly misunderstood i think by uh... people who have not had an opportunity to to study the book carefully it's a difficult book to understand it's full of strange symbols and unusual animals with uh... an unnatural number of heads and horns and eyes And a lot of people wonder what in the world is going on in the book and how we can interpret it. It's difficult for us to understand because we're so far removed from its initial writing. But uh, the people to whom this book was uh, first written understood quite clearly what John was saying. It was a form of literature that was well known. It wasn't the common or conventional form of literature, but it uh, it was still quite well known. It stands in relationship to the uh, normal body of literature, somewhat like surrealistic painting stands uh, in relationship to realism today. If you look at a picture that's painted by Picasso or Salvador Dali or Andy Warhol and his big pictures of Campbell's soup cans and that sort of thing, uh, you realize that these artists are not trying to convey realism. They're not trying to paint things as they really are. They're, They're trying to say something. They're speaking symbolically. Now, that's uh, what the book of Revelation does. It speaks symbolically. And when it talks about beasts that will conquer the earth, the the author, John, is not really thinking of animals, but rather of nations and people. The problem is to identify these symbols, and they're sometimes difficult. Some of them are explained for us in uh, other books of of the Bible, the book of Daniel, for example, and uh, other so-called apocalyptic literature outside the Scripture. But in, in some cases, we simply have to guess. What these symbols mean, we can't be sure. Our guesses can be educated. They're not uh, shots in the dark, but still we have to guess at the meaning of some of, some of the symbolic uh, pictures. But the meaning of the book itself, the big ideas are very clear, unmistakable, and it's these that we're mostly uh, concerned with in our study of, of the book. Now, if you recall from the opening chapters, the, uh, the author, the apostle John, had been exiled to the island of Patmos, a little island off the coast of Turkey. And uh, one Sunday morning, he was walking along the seashore, perhaps thinking about his own plight, his separation from his his family, and the fact that the world seemed so unjust and unfair. We're not told these things. I'm just surmising that that was his uh, state of mind, because certainly he was uh, being unjustly treated. And... uh, we're told that, that he was arrested in his walk by a voice that he heard behind him, and as he turned, he saw the resurrected Lord. And uh, that revelation, symbolic revelation of the Lord, and the Lord's words to him changed his entire perspective upon uh, his, his circumstances. And uh, the resurrection does that. You know, we, uh, we really get fogged mentally by what we hear from the world. But uh, one glimpse of the Lord in his glory, one reminder of, of his promises, one, uh, one remembrance of the truth that he has revealed, and, and our whole way of looking at life and our circumstances and the pile under which we find ourselves is changed. And we just start looking at life in a different way, and that's what happened to John. And then uh, in his vision, he was taken up into heaven. And he had a vision of God seated upon the throne. He didn't see God. Scripture is very clear. No one has ever seen God. But there was a symbolic representation of God upon his throne. And what John learned was that God is not uh, fidgeting on his throne. He's not undone by the state of, of things in the world. He's, he's in control. And not only is he, is he in control, he has a plan for history which will bring about the end of everything that brings us distress, causes us heartache and and pain. He's going to set everything right. And that great revelation of the plan by which God is going to change the face of things was contained in a scroll, a great papyrus roll that was in his hand. And the cry went out through the universe who is worthy to open the scroll who can learn the things that will set things right and implement this plan that will bring about justice and bring an end to suffering and sorrow and death and disease and war and the threat of nuclear holocaust and all the things that that frighten us our marriages and our personal lives and our health and our well-being who will set things right and uh, no one was found until the lamb appears John sees uh, the Lord Jesus represented symbolically as a lamb who appears to be slaughtered. And the lamb, because of his death, his love for mankind and his death on their, on their behalf, has the credentials to take the scroll and to open it. And as the seals of the scroll are opened, we saw, or John saw, peering before his eyes, those forces that God permits to be unleashed upon the earth that will bring man to the end of himself. You see, uh, the real problem is, is man and the way he is. As Pogo puts it, we have met the enemy and he is us. The problem is not our, any lack of education that we suffer or some economic reversal that we've experienced. The problem is much deeper than that. There's something radically wrong with us as human beings. The Bible pictures the world as though it's a great kingdom in which there's been a rebellion against the king. And uh, we've all set ourselves up as kings. We have our own little kingdom. And we don't want anyone to interfere with that kingdom. And it's that pride, that haughtiness of spirit, that independence from God, the one for whom we were created, that creates all the trouble in the world. That's why everything is wrong with the world we live in. That's why we struggle in our marriages, and that's why it's, uh, why labor and management have a difficult time getting along, and it's why there is disease and death on the earth. There's something wrong with us, and it's that rebellious spirit. And what the Scripture tells us is that God appeals to us again and again to respond to His love. He does so out of His graciousness of heart, His love for mankind. And if we refuse to respond, then he has to unleash against us those forces that are of our own making. Our pride in our technology and our tendency to tamper with our environment and with human lives always uh, comes back to haunt us, and we just make the world a miserable place to live. And uh, what John saw is that as these seals are broken, these forces are turned loose against men, and ultimately he's brought to the end of, of himself. And as John describes it here in Revelation 6, verse 15, The result is that the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. In other words, all the the leaders, the great men, the strong men in history are brought to the end of themselves. And they recognize that they cannot make it without God. This uh, unleashing of these powers in history and, and in our time is redemptive. It's designed to bring us to the end of ourselves and to show us that we cannot stand without God. And that's the question. That's raised at the end of of chapter 6, verse 17. The great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who can stand it? Now, as we know from our studies, he's talking specifically about this time at the end of history in which everything will break loose. It's the time described as Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation. And ultimately, these events... uh, have to do with, with that period of time just before the coming again of Christ but, uh, but the things which he teaches here are true in any time of tribulation Jesus said in the world you shall have tribulation that's just the way things are and the older you get the more you, you take that at face value the world is a tough place to live and uh, how can we stand it when our marriages start to fall apart and our health declines and the economy goes sour and we're living on our visa cards and the debt melts and we wake up in the middle of the night and we can't sleep because for the life of us we can't figure out how we're going to pay the bills at the end of of the month and we struggle and we hurt and the question comes to our mind who can stand it? Well chapter 7 is the answer to that question It's a description of those who can stand anything, who are able to face into any set of circumstances and and reign like like kings. Let's, uh, Let's read the chapter, beginning with verse 1, Revelation 7, 1. After this, John says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea, or on, a, on any tree. The scene shifts uh, suddenly, and uh, there is a, an interlude, a dramatic interlude, in which the answer to this question, who can stand, is given. And uh, these destructive forces that have been unleashed upon the the earth are held in abeyance for a period of time. The angels who are the agents of God's will they their servants who carry out his will are sent out to the four corners of the earth that is they're sent out every place to hold back destruction for a period of time until some action can be taken wind in this apocalyptic literature always refers to destructive elements and uh, for a period of time destruction is is held back until some action can be taken And in chapter 2, that action is described for us. John says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. He sees an angel with a signet ring, and a seal upon it and before uh, these destructive uh, elements can be unleashed there are some who must be sealed and they go out to seal a number described in verses 4 through 8 on their foreheads a seal in the Old Testament world signified ownership they find uh, jug handles on wine bottles and uh, various possessions that were identified by seals they took their signet ring and implanted that seal in a piece of wax And that indicated ownership that belonged to the one uh, whose seal it it bore. And John symbolically sees this angel implanting that seal on the forehead of people as an indication that these are the people that belong to God. It's almost as though John, from his vantage point in heaven, could look down upon a a crowd like this, and uh, he would see an identifying mark on each person. Uh, On some of us, it would be easier to see than others because yours would be covered by hair, but uh, mine would be readily noted. And John would look down and he would say, that one belongs to God and that one belongs to God and that one. And we know from the rest of Scripture that the seal is actually the, the Spirit of God, the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ. And it's as though when God looks down upon His people, what He sees is Himself reflected in that person. He sees the presence of the Spirit of Christ, and that identifies those of us who who love Him as belonging to Him. And nothing, is, as the Lord put it, can take us out of His hand, take us out of that place of relationship. If you turn over a few uh, chapters to Revelation 14, there is another reference to the ceiling. Revelation 14:1, John says, I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. Same group of people, identified as God's possession. And uh, if you look at the chapter that precedes verse 16, you'll discover that there's another group of people who are likewise marked or sealed, with a mark of ownership. And uh, these belong to the beast, as he's described in chapter 13. We'll not take time to tell you at this point who that is. That comes later. But this is a representative from Western civilization who is a false prophet, a false priest. And he causes all, according to verse 16, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of man. And his number is 666. Now this again is a symbolic uh, mark. It's not a literal mark that people receive. I just, uh, a couple of weeks ago heard the rumor that was circulating that certain uh, uh, people were being required to wear tattoos on their hands or on their forehead before they could receive their welfare checks and in order to get their checks they had to uh, bear this, this mark and uh, someone felt that this was, the, was an indication that the mark of the beast was, was upon us And the person uh, who was writing about this matter uh, had done an informal survey, had actually called uh, the government offices that were supposedly responsible for this sort of thing and found that it was simply a rumor. This sort of thing uh, goes out uh, periodically. And I think it's based upon a misunderstanding. John is not talking about a literal mark. He's talking again about a symbolic mark on the forehead. That is, it's an idea. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking about things. And he tells us what that mark is and what it symbolizes. The mark is 666. Now, he doesn't mean that, uh, that we will literally or anyone will literally have tattooed on their hand or their forehead 666. It means they'll have the attitude of 666. And in this apocalyptic literature, 6 is the number of man. And 3 is the number of God. And so sex raised, uh, repeated three times, is man raised to the position of God. It's humanism. That's all it is. It's the thinking that man and what man does is the measure of all things. And uh, this is just as prevalent today as it will be in this time of Jacob's Jacob's trouble. There are people today who bear the mark of the beast because they, they believe with all of their heart That man somehow is going to bring us out of this terrible mess that we've made of things. Or that something that man has made will give peace and joy and satisfy our hearts. I uh, saw a religious comic book the other day that portrayed people with the mark of the beast as cruel, inhumane, vicious, uh, animal-like people. And uh, it seems to me that uh, they missed the point. Because uh, these people often are undetected. They may be very gracious, loving people. They may serve on school boards. But they're people who believe that man is all that matters or that something that man makes is all that matters. Or they believe the the next uh, snowmobile they buy will give them the peace that they're looking for. Or uh, a log cabin off in the woods is the answer to everything. It's an attitude that man matters and what man does instead of an attitude of confidence and dependence and submission to Jesus Christ. These uh two marks are contrasted all the way through the book of Revelation. Man can't kind is divided into two parts. There are those who bear the mark of the beast and there are those who bear the mark of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh As John goes on to describe them in chapter 14 and verse 3, they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they are celibates. They have, in other words, not succumbed to the temptation of the great harlot, as we'll see described, the world and its philosophy. And these are, are, are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, these are the ones that John sees seal back in chapter 7. They're, they're no one special. They're not particularly religious. They're not even particularly good. They struggle, many of them with habits and flaws in their character. They want to grow and change, but but they're in route. They're in transit. They haven't conquered in every area of their life. But the hallmark of their life is that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now, these, I believe, are the ones that are described for us here in Revelation 7, who are sealed and thus belong to Him. And then in verses 4 through 8, He hears their number. I won't read the entire paragraph because it's... Uh, repetitious but in verse 4 he tells us he heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel from the tribe of Judah 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben 12,000 from the tribe of Gad 12,000 and so forth through the 12 tribes of Israel now numbers in Revelation are significant they may not necessarily mean exact number But uh, they always symbolize something. And in this case, the number 144,000 has a meaning. Twelve is the number of God's people. Ten is the number of completion. So you have twelve squared, the full number of God's people, times ten squared, which is the full number of completion. In other words, this is a symbolic way of saying everyone that belongs to God. Is here in this in this group. Now there are various ways to interpret this uh, this figure of the hundred and forty-four thousand. There are many who believe that this represents Israel, the Jews, ethnic Israel. There are those that uh, Paul describes in Romans eleven as all Israel. That is the believing remnant. Isaiah had predicted that that there would be a hard core of faith. Within Judaism, there would be a group of Jews who would look for Messiah and embrace him when, when he came. And it may be that this 144,000 here are those Jews that will see the Lord Jesus when he comes back or who have already acknowledged him as their Messiah. And uh, Zechariah puts it, they will look upon him, they will see him whom they pierce, they will weep for him, as a mother weeps for her child. These would be Jews who have recognized that the Lord Jesus is indeed Messiah. There are others that believe that this represents all the redeemed Jews and Gentiles, all believers, those that acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, I'm not going to try to unravel that one uh, for us this uh, morning. When we come to chapter 14, we'll talk more about the 144,000. It's enough for me to say that uh, at this point, I believe it's both. The 144,000 represent not only the Jews, ethnic Jews, uh, Israelites today who acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, but also the redeemed of, of all time, who have been sealed, who are God's special possession. And the point of this whole paragraph, which is inescapable, no matter when where you place these events, whether we're talking about the period that we're presently in, or some future uh, far-off epoch, some time of great trouble, when God will seal in a special way a group of believers, the principle comes through loud and clear, and it is this. No matter what circumstance God takes you through, He will see you through it. It's never been God's intention to spare us from trouble. Never. There is a delusion abroad, I think, that if uh, you give your life to the Lord Jesus, then everything will work out to your benefit. Your children will never get sick. You'll make a lot of money. You'll rapidly rise to the top of your, of your company. You'll have everything you ever wanted. And the Lord never promises those things. What He promises is that He will see us through anything, whether it's the particular trial that you're going through now, or whether it's this future time of trial when everything will break loose and there will be, as Jesus describes it, a time of trouble unlike anything that has ever hit the earth, God will see you through it. As Paul puts it, God's foundation stands. Having this seal, God knows those that are His. And that's the promise we have. I talked to a lady a few weeks ago who told me That if she had known 20 years ago what she would have to go through today, she wasn't sure she'd make the trip. But in looking back, she says, God has been faithful. He has taken me through every difficult circumstance. And he will do the same for you. He's faithful to his own. He knows who you are. He is committed to you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's always available to you. He's your resource in all of life. All you have to do is count on him. Now, the paragraph that follows again is another shift of scene. Revelation does this uh, frequently, and and in my own mind, it's it's very much like those times when you're at someone's house and they're showing you pictures of their vacation, like their vacation to uh, Hawaii. And they show you a snapshot, and they say, this is the family getting off the plane, and they're putting lays around our neck, and, and this is John uh, surfing on the beach, and uh, this is Bill uh, lying on the beach, and this is Martha and her moo-moo and so forth, and they, they just uh, show you pictures, little vignettes of, of their experience, and you can piece together the entire vacation by looking at pictures. Now, that's what Revelation does. It's like a kaleidoscope. You uh, move the little sleeve, and you get another picture. And uh, John shows us the sealed on earth, those who can go through anything because of God's presence within them, His adequacy. And then He rapidly shifts the scene to heaven. And I believe it's the same group of people that are envisioned in the next uh, paragraph. It's just a different scene. Now, they're in heaven with the Lamb. And uh, John says in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, and here he's shifting from the idea of individuality and selection and personal knowledge to the big picture of an enormous multitude, incalculable in its, in its number. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As he uh, stands before the throne, he sees this uh, vast number of people spreading out as far as his eye can see, uh, all the way to the horizon, and uh, they're standing before God, dressed for the occasion with their white, uh, white robes. And they are chanting and singing together, Salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. In other words, we owe it all to the sovereign will of God and the saving grace of, of the Lamb. Our salvation belongs to Him. We owe it to Him. I have a a good friend who was on the staff of Peninsula Bible Church with me for years. His name is Ted Weiss. And uh, Ted was in the uh, free speech and filthy speech movement at at Berkeley back in the 60s. He came out of the counterculture movement, was involved in a lot of the revolutionary activity on the campus, the burning and and, uh, uh, trashing of... Of buildings there. And uh, I heard him say once, uh, he subsequently became a Christian some years after he left the Berkeley campus. And I heard him say once in giving his testimony that he was sure that when he gets to heaven, some of the profs that he knew and the police that were there on the campus and some of his old cronies would uh, spot him in heaven and they would come up to Ted and say, Ted, what in the world are you doing here? And head says he'll point to the Lord Jesus and say I'm with him. Now that's what we mean when we say our we owe our salvation to him. It's not because we're good or clever. It's because of his grace that he saved us. And uh, this great multitude in heaven recognize all too clearly that they're there not because of any action that they've taken, but because of the sacrifice of the Lamb. And then we're told in verse 11 that all the angels around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures fall on their faces and worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is, all of of created, uh, every created being in the universe joins in this uh, worship uh, before God and the Lamb. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And John responds, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that a striking paradox? These people are dressed for the occasion in their white robes because they have washed them, made them pure and white in the blood of the Lamb. The uh, book of Revelation uniformly uses the idea of garments for character or lifestyle. And here he's talking about a character that's unblemished, free from guilt. These people that were standing before the throne were were ex-adulterers and murderers and crooks and thieves and those that formerly had been proud and arrogant and unkind to their children and their mates and unfaithful to them. They came from every walk of life. Every class is represented here. But uh, they had washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They simply ask for forgiveness because of what Christ had done on the cross. And now they stand before His throne clothed in white garments. Now, these are the living dead. These are those who have perished either through the great tribulation itself or through any other time of tribulation who through natural or unnatural causes have gone to be with the Lord. It's a picture of the vast multitude of the redeemed who stand before the Lord not clothed in their own righteousness or because they were religious or because of any good works that they did, but because of the sacrifice of Christ. And as a result of their salvation, they serve Him, in verse 15, for this reason. They are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. The the writers of Scripture always have a difficult time describing for us heaven because we don't have any analogies for it down here we don't have any words that are adequate and uh, we run into trouble when we try to interpret some of these symbols too literally I uh, as a young boy growing up thought it would be dull to simply stand around the throne and and praise God all day I thought there must be something more that you do in heaven than just roll around heaven all day or or play your harp or put on your shoes or whatever it is that uh the uh, spirituals uh, indicate about life in heaven but remember this is symbolic and I think the point is that we want to serve love always wants to serve if you love your wife you want to do things for her and because the Lord has given himself for us our love is so deep and intense we want to serve I don't know what that service will entail there are suggestions from the parables that Jesus told that uh, those who love him will have some opportunity to rule over some segment of of his universe. We don't know. We're not told. But uh, we're given some animation of what heaven will be like. We won't uh, merely sit around and play harps. We'll serve. We'll give. We'll have a useful function throughout eternity. And then we're told what the Lamb himself will do and the one who sits on the throne. In the last phrase of verse 15. He who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, and he shall guide them to springs of the water of life, and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. That's such a beautiful picture. It's taken right out of their culture. You know, life was hard, and the climate was harsh in the ancient Near East and their journeys were difficult but uh, even though they had to make their way through areas that were uh, troubled by bandits and uh, the inns were dangerous places to stay and food and water was scarce there was always the prospect of going home where there would be a tent spread and there would be a big banquet and fellowship and uh, comfort and encouragement and John says that's the way heaven is If we were telling the story today, we would probably describe a trip uh, through uh, Winnemucca and points south, and we finally arrive uh, at the Hilton, where there is room service and uh, air conditioning and and a scrumptious uh, dinner is served for us. It's that sort of picture that John is trying to evoke. That's what heaven is like. And it's all there because of Jesus, because of what he did. Not because of our activity, but because, as Jesus put it, he went. To prepare a place for us. I uh, used to envision the Lord donning a pair of carpenters overalls and and working on building a house, but uh, again, he's speaking symbolically. The, The way he prepared the place was the cross. It was through his death and burial and resurrection that he made a way to the Father's house. And heaven then is merely a matter of going home and being with the Lord. And enjoying his presence. And like a little child who uh, has been crying and then suddenly something happens to uh, bring joy and there are still tears running down his face. And the parent wipes the tears away so the Lord will wipe our tears away. And death no longer will be a threat. There will be no longer any suffering, any pain. The Lord will make things right. Now that we have because of Easter. It's because the Lord Jesus died and rose again that the two things revealed, the two principles revealed in this chapter or so. We have today a living Lord who's resident in our life, who can take us through anything. I don't care what it is. No matter how difficult your home may be or how distressing your life may be financially or how much pressure you're under, God in His indwelling presence can take you through that that circumstance. And then out front, on ahead, is this prospect, this glorious prospect of, sending, of spending eternity with Him. That's the blessed hope. That's the sure thing. And nothing that we do now is, is going to cause us to forfeit that, uh, that destiny. Life is hard and unjust now. The world is full of injustice and greed and uncertainty. And the older I get, the more convinced I become that uh, that's the way life is. But um, God has promised that He's with us to the end. And at the end, He's waiting for us. Two things this passage teaches. Number one, God will take you through anything. And number two, He will ultimately take us to be with Him. As Paul put it, this light, momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory because we look not at the things that are seen but the things that are unseen and uh, the real question we have to ask ourselves this morning is what what are we focusing upon if we think that uh, the next pay raise is going to deliver us from anxiety or the next home we buy is going to give us the security and peace that we're looking for Or the next position to which we're elevated in our country, in our company, will uh, make us feel worthwhile and valuable. Or if just getting our uh, marriage sorted out and put together will make me peaceful. then we're looking at things that are seen. And we do not recognize what Paul is talking about. But if we're looking at the things that are unseen, the Lord's ability to be in us today, whatever we need to be, and the certainty of a destiny that's secure, then our lives can be at peace. And the way to get on the inside is to ask the Lord Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. And if you've never done that, there's no better time than today. On the day that our Lord Jesus rose from the dead, His character, who He was, was vindicated by the resurrection. Let's pray. If you've never asked the Lord to be the Lord of your life, would you do so now? The Scriptures tell us that God loves us and has a plan for our life. That plan has just been described for us in this chapter. But the problem is that we're sinful and separated from God. And we can't know God's plan for our life. Our sin is this great rebellion that we described earlier. We want to be king in our own kingdom and not make room in our life and our kingdom for God. But despite our rebellion, the Lord Jesus took upon Himself our, our sins, our rebellion. And now He offers... Today, freedom from guilt. Our character can be washed in the blood of the Lamb. We can be free from the guilt and the pain and the shame of our past and the terrible things that we've done to ourselves and to others, the hurt that uh, we've caused for which we and we alone are to blame. And now he simply wants us to enter in, to ask for that forgiveness. To receive Him into our life as Savior and Lord. And when we do so, He promises to give us the resources that we need for life right now. And then He'll come again for us and we'll go to be with Him. And we'll live with Him forever. Would you like to ask Him in? Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Will you ask him in? Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming into the world, living among us, dying for us, rising for our justification. We want you as our Lord in all of life.